0: With Dr. Frank Turek.
1: We got a lot of mail this week from last week's podcast. Why did evangelicals vote for Donald Trump? We're not going to get to that mail this week. It'll come in coming weeks because we have another guest today that actually really started that meeting that we had in the Trump Tower, but we're not really going to talk about that. We're going to talk about money, greed, and God. What is socialism? What is Marxism? What is communism? How do they differ? shouldn't Christians be communists based on the early believers communing their resources in the book of Acts and doesn't socialism work I mean it works in Sweden doesn't it and why do you think so many young people are attracted to socialism isn't capitalism based on greed there's a thousand questions we could get answered from my friend Dr. Jay Richards who wrote the seminal book about a decade ago called money greed and God yet it's just been updated in a new edition which kind of annoys me because I've just I marked up money greed God. Now I got to mark up the new edition. I've got the uh, the decade-old edition, and it is a fabulous book. And the subtitle is "Why Capitalism Is the Solution and Not the Problem." Before we get to Jay, I want to point out. Uh, that Jay is a professor at Catholic University in the Bush School of Business. He is also a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute. He helps uh, edit the uh, co- the uh, columns. He's actually one of the co-founders of Stream.org. If you haven't been to Stream.org, you got to go there. Great columns dealing with Christianity and uh, how it interacts with culture. I write there on occasion. Many other people write there on occasion. Jay's also uh, one of the authors of The Privileged Planet. The Human Adva- Advantage is his book. Uh, he has a new book coming out called Eat, Fe- Eat, Fast, and Feast. I don't know if we'll be able to feast on that here in this topic and many other books. It's always great to have Jay on the show. He's been on before. Jay, how are you?
0: Great. Thanks for having me,
1: Frank. Hey, it's great having you on. And uh, this Money, Greed, and God book is just... I think whenever whenever people are confused about economics, I always say just go get Money, Greed, and God because it's such a seminal book. Why did you decide to update it? What what what's new in the new version?
0: Well, what's new in the new version is I've updated the data because obviously economic data changes. The examples, I mean, ten years is a long time for somebody that's eighteen years old. They're not going to remember, you know, what's WorldCom, what's Enron. There's no memories of this, right? Okay. I mean, you know, and so really needed to update that. I also wanted to beef up the discussion of socialism. I editor. Mm-hmm the first time around, it said, Jay, you're beating a dead horse with this socialism stuff. Nobody wants socialism. You got to pare that back. And so I did. They let me keep the opening chapter where I talk about the history of communism. In the new edition, my, my new editor, uh, the same publisher said, Jay, maybe we'll, we'll beef up the socialism discussion a little bit. <laughs> so I was like, all righty, I've actually got some pros here somewhere. I can plug that in. And I was never really happy with the subtitle, which was the publisher, that capitalism is the solution, not the problem. My publisher wanted that because the book originally came out right after uh, the financial crisis, and they thought it would be provocative, and it was. But I really wanted the Christian case for free enterprise as the subtitle. So in the new edition, that's what this is, just because I really, it's supposed to be just a positive case. And also because the word capitalism and socialism, as you just mentioned, this is confusing to people. And if you don't define these terms properly, you never can't have a good argument about it.
1: Yeah, I just noticed the new edition does have a different subtitle. I didn't even know that. Okay, well, let's get right into it then. Let's not waste any time. Give us the difference between socialism, Marxism, and communism, and then we'll talk about capitalism later. What's the difference between socialism, Marxism, and communism?
0: Okay, so Marxism is the theory that's based on this the materialistic, dialectical, materialist interpretation of history by Karl Marx in the Middle Of the 19th century socialism is this broader idea that if you look up in webster's dictionary it's basically an economic system either that all in which all private property is abolished uh or in which the state that is the government owns all the means of production that is all of the the productive property communism is is this utopian ideal end state that was a part of marx's theory and so marx said that the economies they go through these stages, there's a feudalism, and feudalism gives rise to something he called capitalism. And then capitalism eventually from its problems, it collapses and it gives rise to socialism where the state owns everything. And that's a socialist stage. So socialism is really just a stage in Marxist theory. And then Marx said, once you had socialism for a while, a new socialist man would emerge that didn't wasn't attached to things. And then the state would wither away and there'd be this ideal utopia uh, in, in which there is no government and everybody is free, everyone lives a life of abundance and that was communism. But of course, all the Marxist attempts to implement this and to bring on the socialist temporary way station got stuck there. They never moved to soak communism, that utopian stage. And the reason is because Marxist theory is completely nonsense. It's not based on the evidence of economics or of history. It's based on his weird version of Hegelian philosophy. So it makes sense that people confuse these terms because they have a family resemblance, but they're not exactly the same thing.
1: What countries have gotten closest to the socialist model where the government owns the means of production?
0: The closest that anyone ever got to that was the Soviet Union right after the Russian Revolution in 1917, 1918. uh, Vladimir Lenin was in charge, and he immediately tried to implement, you know, abolish prices, abolish private property, collectivize all the factories, uh, collectivize all the peasant farms, so big sort of government-owned farms. It led to such catastrophe that several million people died of famine as a result of it, and he Lenin had to actually implement uh, price reforms and market reforms in the early nineteen twenties because it was such a disaster. And that, it's such a disaster when this is tried when you literally abolish private property that most Marxist and communist socialist uh, experiments, you know, in places like Venezuela, they go part of the way there. So in Venezuela, they've nationalized a bunch of industries, but they haven't they confiscated everyone's houses and cars, and so the effects of of pure socialism are so immediately disastrous that any politician that doesn't have absolute control is not going to try it. They're going to always try sort of halfway measures.
1: It seems to be a misunderstanding of human nature, that they think that people don't need to be incentivized to work and that people are going to work hard and not be able to enjoy the fruits of their labor. What do you think? Is that the real reason it doesn't work? Why doesn't it work?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think one, it's based on, as you said, basically a false understanding of human nature. Uh, The reality is that humans need to see some connection. We need to see some connection between the work that we do. And as you said, the the fruits of our labor. And when we do that, when you like say, okay, what do I need to provide for people that they'll freely buy that incentivizes you to try to serve other people and to benefit yourself at the same time, once that connection is severed. So no matter how hard you work, or how lazily you you work, right? you're going to get paid the same thing. That just massively messes up incentives. And then there's this more kind of subtle economic reason that I discuss in the book, and it's just that socialism doesn't have a price system. And so one thing that an economy does is it transmits information to everyone who's making decisions in the economy. So if price goes up and it's a normal market economy that tells you, okay, either more people are wanting that thing or maybe we're we're running out of it. And so people are able to make decisions based on that. If you don't have a functioning price system, it's basically it's like if you can imagine if you had the Internet and somehow you just scrambled all the signals. Well, that's what socialism does. It scrambles all the economic signals that you really need in a functioning economy. And so even if everybody were entirely sanctified, Even if everybody worked hard no matter what, it still wouldn't work because it destroys the price system. And it turns out as economists know the price system is absolutely essential for a functioning economy.
1: How would a central authority have the knowledge to make the decisions to govern an economy?
0: No central authority can do that, or at least any, I'd say any finite human central authority. This is the key problem that the famous economist Friedrich Hayek pointed out. It's this this knowledge problem. And so uh, a central authority would need to know, okay, how much would Jay Richards pay for this particular type of shoe at this particular moment under these conditions? Well, he doesn't have access to that information. In fact, nobody does. And if you think of an economy, it's this sort of input of trillions of those kinds of decisions happening all the time. Prices are fluctuating to accommodate that. And so unless... Um, you have basically God in charge of the economy and directly setting prices. It's not going to happen because nobody has access to that information.
1: We're talking to Jay Richards, his brand new book, Money, Greed and God, You Need to Get. It is the standard work, in my view, on economics, particularly from a Christian perspective. And we'll talk more with Jay right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turk on the American Family Radio Network. We're back in just two minutes. My guest today is Jay Richards, his brand new updated book, Money, Greed, and God. Trust me, it's one of the best things you'll read on economics, particularly written by a Christian, and it answers a lot of questions out there. And I want to get back to some of the questions that this book answers. But before I do, I I do need to ask Jay one thing. Uh, I I mentioned last week on the podcast that I was part of a meeting with uh, then-candidate Donald Trump back on september twenty ninth twenty sixteen I talked about that meeting at length uh, last week because it was the it was the three year late article on that meeting in Rolling Stone last week and uh, the the author Alex Morris uh, tried to intimate that everybody in that room was for Trump and wanted Trump to win, and now the, the Christians are worshiping Trump. The man who really set up the meeting was Jay Richards, and he's with me right now, Jay. <laughs> What do you want to say about that meeting and, and what really came down after that meeting?
0: Yeah, well, the Rolling Stone piece, I didn't actually bother to respond to it because, as you said, I mean, this has been three years now. It's been more than mm-hmm. three years. Uh, but the reality is that the meeting, the reason people didn't hear about it is that it was, it was basically a group of conservative evangelicals and Catholics who were very interested in religious liberty. And I would say that the, the opinion ranged from hardcore never Trump to, okay, Trump's better than the alternative. That was right. the kind of political opinion, at least at the time. You got to think about well, yeah, when this was, think about what was happening in September of 2016. There were a lot of us that were trying to decide, okay, what do we do with this guy, Donald Trump? And Trump agreed to listen to a series of, expo- you know kind of briefings essentially about religious liberty because it was really important to the people in the room. Uh, and he agreed to do it. I mean, I honestly, I had been, you know, talking to some people in the campaign that I happened to know previously um, and said, well, you know, what what would be a useful thing to do? And I said, it would be great if Mr. Trump, you know, were to be briefed by some people that are real experts on religious freedom and, and liberty, because a lot of us think that's a really important issue. I actually didn't expect it to happen, frankly. You know, it's one of these things you say. And then within a couple of weeks, it's like, OK, uh, we're going to he's agreed to do this. <laughs> Right. So like, well, then we you were all set up the meeting, right? Yeah, right. Yes, exactly. So you set up the meeting, and, you know, I asked people, look, let's not talk about this in part because some of the people that were there didn't really want to be connected anyway to the campaign. And also because Donald Trump was meeting with people that had been publicly critical of him. The campaign, I thought, well, the campaign will publicize it. The campaign never said anything. A couple of nope. people that were there said things about it eventually. And then there's this story in Rolling Stone implying that you know, it's some kind of big conspiracy or that everybody that was there was uh, worshiping Trump. I mean, it it wasn't true then. It's not true now.
1: No. In fact, the MC was thoroughly excoriated for trying to cheer uh, Donald Trump after he had left the room. And uh, a lot of people went (laughs) after him and said, we know who this guy is. What? You don't need to cheerlead for him. No, everybody,
0: yeah, we basically knew. And it was, you know, it was amazing because he did he was there. And I mean, I've now I've been in his presence a few times. That is the president. And, he, you know, he's an unusual person. He's a different person in totally private unusual. than he is yeah. in this kind of TV persona mm-hmm. that he has. And so and I'm, you know, I'm a little utilitarian when it comes to politics. And so my view is, OK, I don't want a terrible person, all things being equal. You know, I'd really like somebody that had all my exact views. But given what we have, you know, as my friend John Merrick says, it's like, look, if the choice is between uh, Nero or Diocletian or Diocletian and Constantine, right? You pick mm-hmm. Constantine, even if he's not maybe <laughs> your favorite guy. And right. so that's, that's sort of how it comes down to it. I have been pleased with, you know, at the policy level, about 75% of what uh, he's done, which would, it would have been 0% if it had been the other candidate. So I feel like that that's positive.
1: Yeah, Trump is the most unusual, uh, he's not a politician, but he, I guess he is now because yeah. he's president. Steve Moore put it this way, the economist. He said, most mm-hmm. politicians are nice in public and they're jerks in private. Trump is the opposite.
0: <laughs> that's <laughs> exactly right.
1: He's a jerk no, that's in public exactly right. And he's nice in private.
0: He yeah. is. And, you know, I mean, Frankie, I met with him on a completely different sort of subject privately, you know, with him because it's a mutual friends in 2015. I, I don't ever sort of talk about this, but mm-hmm. what's struck me was how he was nice to the waitress, he was nice to the bodyguard, he was mm-hmm. nice to the person that was opening the elevator, right? He was just that's what's so funny about him. People think he's this billionaire plutocrat. But the truth of the matter is, he's not really a respecter of persons, but he goes after you if you criticize him. I mean, that's, 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 that's what right. he's
1: like. <laughs> that's the childish part about him. But yeah, I spoke enough about it last week, and I'll get to your comments, what you thought about what we talked about last week in a future podcast. But let's let's go back to the economics here, Jay. And, and that, of yeah. course, relates to the economy. I mean, I mean, to the mm-hmm. president and, and policy and and choices people are going to have to make next year. Um, let's go back also to what some Christians will say, and maybe some more on the progressive side, the liberal side will say, hey, mm-hmm. y- y- as Christians, you should really be almost communist, because that's what the early Christians did in the early chapters of the book of Acts. Now, you address this in money, greed, and God. Give us a short answer to that.
0: Yeah, the short answer is that, first of all, what happened in the early chapters in Acts in the church in Jerusalem wasn't communism or socialism notice the government wasn't involved no one is collectivizing private property what happened is in this very unusual moment it's right after pentecost there have been thousands of jews have come from around the roman world to gather in jerusalem and then thousands of them suddenly become christians they're away from their homes their jobs their families and in that unusual It's really an emergency situation. The Holy Spirit moved on uh, the the new Christians that were local, that is, that had their possessions, and persuaded them, say, look, sell your possessions and and then share among uh, the new Christians that are here as a part of this community. Now, for all we know, this happened for six weeks or maybe six months. You know, you read Paul's letters. This was never treated as a a sort of normative model that all congregations were supposed to follow. Um, It was a response to a very sort of an emergency situation. And it, it, under that circumstance, it absolutely made sense. But it's not communist any more than our families are communist. I mean, hmm. obviously, in your family, you share in, in common amongst yourselves. You don't, you know, you don't charge your children for every meal that they eat when they're <laughs> we, sixteen we years old or, or whatever, right? Teenage, we should, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, absolutely. Now that I say that, I need to think more about it. But the reality is, nobody says, "Well, families are communist, so let's all be communist." No, it's sharing in common and living a communal life, voluntarily has nothing to do with modern socialism or communism. It's just, it's really just the result of not being careful with our terms and our thinking that leads people to say this. Now we hear that socialism works in Sweden. Is that true? No, it's not true. And um, and in fact, if you look at the index of economic freedom, I encourage uh, uh, listeners to do that. Just go look at the most recent index of economic freedom. What you'll notice is that all the Scandinavian countries are ranked fairly high. In fact, sometimes these countries are higher than the United States of America on the index of economic freedom. That's because they're generally friendly places for doing business. It's usually really easy uh, to start businesses. Now they do have high Uh, income taxes, and they do have a kind of cradle to grave welfare system. But, But in terms of kind of defining socialism as government control or ownership of the economy in Sweden, which is probably the closest to to, to socialism of any of them, the government owns about 15 percent of the economy. So it's simply not true. Now these countries did all go through a kind of semi-socialist experimental phase in the 1970s, and it led to a depressed and more abundant economy. And so every one of them is now going in the other direction. And so when people say this, what they're really what they're doing, people like Bernie Sanders, they want they know you have a positive mental image of Scandinavian villages, right? You're picturing this Mm. Norwegian village, and everybody has a Volvo in the garage, (laughs) and they're singing songs together around the campfire. And so they're counting on you to have that mental image Mm. and not to have actually done an economic analysis of Scandinavia. But it's absolutely not true. If you want an example of actual democratic socialism in action, just look to Venezuela. That's the best current example we have.
1: Now, Jay, I know that they don't have to spend as much on defense as we do. Does that enable them <laughs> to have a, 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 a more of a, as you would say, cradle-to-grave socialistic system than, than than we do? Or what's the reason that they yes. have more of these it, that's, benefits? Go
0: that's ahead. part of it. They certainly don't have to spend a whole lot of money on defense. I mean, we're spending mm-hmm. it. In fact, we're doing that, we're, we're sort of an American defense umbrella for all of Western right. Europe. The other thing is that all of these countries are basically small American states in terms of size. So uh, Norway, for instance, is about the size of Washington state in terms of its population. It's also highly ethnically homogenous. They have very Mm. particular cultures. They tend to generally think, okay, people, you shouldn't live on the dole. So there's these strong cultural expectations. And so I think there's no reason to think that every people group responds exactly the same way to different tax rates. And so I honestly think that Scandinavian culture, people are generally, at least historically, they're willing to have a larger and more activist state, uh, just as we're you know more willing to deal with things that are close to us nearby. But it doesn't follow, even if something worked perfectly in Norway with 5 million Norwegians, it doesn't follow that you could scale it up to a highly diverse nation state that spans a continent that has 330 million people in it. That's the the thing that socialists always confuse is the problem of scale. So there are things that work at the level of a family or a neighborhood or a local church or a state that don't work necessarily at the size of a nation state. And so I think this one of the conservative dispositions is to look at social institutions and pay attention to scale and realize that the same thing doesn't work at every level.
1: The two industries that the government seems to control significantly are education and health care. Is there any connection between the fact that the government <laughs> controls those industries, at least to a large part, and their prices are high uh-huh. and their quality is low? Is there any connection? absolutely okay. yes? And in Why? fact, I'll what name one it? other one.
0: So there's, it's it's highly intrusive government. And the third one is higher education. Higher education, yes. at least good at the elite level. But those are the three industries that the federal government has been the most involved with in the twentieth century. And they're the three areas that go up much faster than the rate of inflation. Everything else, consumer spending, you know, consumer goods, computers, cars, all those things adjusted for inflation, the prices actually go down on those things.
1: Hmm. So I said education and healthcare. Are you saying secondary education and higher education and healthcare? Not, those three no, areas? so higher I'm oh. sorry.
0: So higher education, healthcare, and housing. Oh, those housing. are the three. Okay, housing, housing, yes. And so so the mortgage market is highly manipulated and controlled by the federal government. And those three all go up in prices on average about twice the rate of inflation.
1: Hmm. And that is because too much government involvement in your view?
0: Absolutely. In fact, every single one of those, if you look, they're basically the three most regulated industries uh, in our economy, and they're the three sort of outliers in terms of prices continually going up, adjusted for inflation rather than staying the same or going down.
1: Now, Jay, we got just about a minute before the break. Why do you think that so many young people are attracted to a failed system, socialism, communism, whatever? Why? Why are so many young people attracted to this?
0: I think it's because for the one thing, nobody knows what the word means. Uh, And so when they're asked in these polls, they don't get, okay, socialism is the abolition of private property and government ownership of everything. Now, what do you think, right? The polls never say that. The second thing is that none of them have memories of the Cold War. And so mm-hmm. they're able to just have their minds filled with things from the media, from their college professors. And so they don't even actually know what they're saying. I honestly think that those polls, even though there's a lot of political confusion among the kind of young population, I really don't think that the thirst for literal socialism is, is, is very strong uh, in any age. group.
1: Yeah. And the, and the third reason is because the people teaching them are part of a socialist, assist, socialist <laughs> system. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. So anyway, we're talking to my friend Jay Richards. His new book, Money, Greed, and God, you need to get. It's been updated, and it is a standard work on economics, particularly for the Christian. Pick it up. I'm Frank Turek, back in two. Merry Christmas. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. If you're low on the FM dial looking for National Public Radio, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You're not going to hear Money, greeted God, not in this context anyway, on National Public Radio. We're talking to my friend Jay Richards about that. Before we go back to Jay, I've got to mention a couple of things coming up. Uh, This year, this year. This Well, the end of this year, next week, this coming week, uh, November 19th, I'm going to be emceeing a online meeting for Southern Evangelical Seminary. If you're interested in really going forward and learning apologetics, philosophy, theology, evidence for the faith, then you may want to be a part of this live online Zoom meeting. Just go to ses.edu, click on events, you'll see it there, ses.edu. I'll be emceeing it. You'll be live with me and Richard Howe and some other folks uh, on Zoom Zoom video. It's Thursday night. I want to say it's 7 p.m. Eastern time. Just go check it out right there. Also want to mention that this is listener-supported radio. We're coming up to the end of the year, and we can't do what we do on college campuses. As you know, we go to college campuses and present I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. We go to high school campuses, do the same. We have radio. You're listening to it right now. We have TV on the NRB network. We also have a great uh, presence on YouTube, on Facebook, on Instagram, providing answers to young people who have questions about Christianity, theology, philosophy, apologetics, that kind of thing. We can't do it without you. So if you feel led to give to crossexamine.org, go to our website, crossexamine.org, click on Donate. 100% of your donations go to ministry, 0% go to buildings. We're living in the Internet age. We don't need buildings. We all work out of our homes, and we go to where you are. We go to the college campus, the high school campus. We go wherever young people are. That's who our primary uh, our, our group is that we're trying to reach. So 100% goes to ministries, 0% to buildings, and it's tax deductible. All right, back to my friend Jay Richards, Money, Greed, and God. It's his book that you need to get. Now, I think Jay, being liberal economically, I think, is understandable, particularly for young people, because they see a problem mm-hmm. and they want a solution, and the tendency is to think that one needs an authority to solve a problem, a top-down solution, and the biggest, most obvious authority out there is government, but top-down doesn't work economically. Why doesn't it work, Jay?
0: Well, it doesn't work because, I mean, honestly, even if you didn't kind of have any theoretical understanding, you could actually look at the history of the 20th century. And what you find is that countries that have not anarchy, but have a functioning government with the rule of law, uh, private property rights, and titling rights and limited government that is government's not involved in everything it just focuses mm-hmm. on the rule of law and then that sets up the conditions for a wide amount of economic freedom in which people find ways to engage in so-called mutually beneficial interactions right to trade in ways so i, I buy something from someone freely they wanted what i had and i wanted what they had And we wanted those things more than the thing we had and so we trade freely and we both end up better off as a result so we know that countries that have that everyone ends up doing better, that people are lifted out of poverty, uh, per capita income goes up, all the stuff you'd want from an economy. Countries either that have dysfunctional governments on the one hand that just simply, you know, can't even sort of maintain a police force or that do too much, do way more than it's competent to do are always disasters. And so I'd say the first thing to do rather than getting worried that you don't know economics is just look at the evidence from the 20th century because it hands down it's obvious what's going on now there are sort of more complicated economic explanations that i go into in the book money greed and god for why this is why a market economy works well i do think that sometimes some of my fellow free marketers they get themselves in a kind of rhetorical bind because they make it sound like government is always the problem. That's Mm. not really the right lesson because if you don't have a functioning government, you don't have a free market. I mean, it's not like the law of the jungle is a free market economy, right? right. I mean, that's not a good thing. What you want is a healthy, functioning, limited government that focuses on its core competence and then allows other institutions churches and smaller governmental institutions and families and voluntary organizations to prosper and businesses to prosper those are separate institutions other than government that's what you really want you want a healthy social ecosystem and under those con- under those conditions you get a, a, a much healthier economy. And I would argue also kind of set up the conditions for us to be able to develop virtue, to be able to practice our religious faith uh, more faithfully, and all those good things.
1: In fact, you have an example in Money, Greed, and God that I think is just fabulous that explains why a top down system won't work and how a free market actually helps everybody. It helps the poor, it helps everybody above the poor, even the It helps everybody. And it's the example you give where you say, okay, nobody at Apple, there's no one person. At Apple, who knows how to make an iPod, in fact, or an iPhone, and there's no one person who knows even how to make a pencil. Can you unpack that illustration or that story? Because I think it illustrates it so beautifully.
0: Yeah, and you said iPod because that was the original That's edition right. of 2009, right? That's another thing I had to update. <laughs> yeah, Nobody the knows what an iPod okay. is.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or <laughs> grandpa's,
0: that right. was so iPhone. Yeah, so the basic idea comes from a, this iPencil by Leonard Reed. It's just the point that in a market system and if you have rule of law and people are able to attend to prices, you can have these exquisitely complex supply chains and create things that no one person knows how to do. A pencil it, you know, it seems like the simplest thing in the world, but most people don't know how to do graphite mining. Most people don't know how right. to do rubber farming. Most people don't right, know how to do the carpentry that's required, all these kinds of details. And yet there are pencils and they cost two or three cents. How is that possible? Well, it's possible in part because human beings are created in the image of God and we're creative, but no one person knows how to create a pencil. It requires a particular kind of coordination or really cooperation because we're both individuals made in the image of God, but we're also social beings. And so a good functioning market economy allows us to do things by by um, you know, sort of bringing our labor together, cooperating our labor in ways that produce things that none of the individual members could produce. And so a simple homely example is the pencil the one that we all look at every single day, usually many times a day, would be something like our smartphones, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, just just describing the smartphone. I had to, When I first wrote the book, I remember I spent two weeks just getting the information on the companies that made components in the smartphone. But if you were to trace every detail of the materials and the programming and the shipping uh, and the manufacture, it ends up involving probably hundreds of millions of people. No one knows how to make even one little part uh, one little component and yet they're smartphones and so that's why people often think of the market as this it's this sort of nature red and tooth and claw it's all mm. about competition but if anything yeah there's competition involved between firms competing for customers but it's really about this unbelievable efflorescence of cooperation in which humans in our creative capacity can really amplify our creative capacity when we work together in this coordinated way
1: this is why Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, Albert Einstein no, – it doesn't matter who you put at the top. Nobody mm-hmm. knows how to pull all this off. There is no one uh, – uh, Tim Cook at Apple doesn't know how to build an iPhone. No. He has no idea I, how to do it, and yet it happens. It's, it's, it is does. Is, 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 is this, Jay, what, what Adam Smith, who wrote Wealth of Nations, what, three centuries mm-hmm. ago? Is, is that what he meant yep. by the invisible hand of the market? Is that what he meant?
0: Yes, that's exactly what he meant. In fact, he if you read The Wealth of Nations, he never speaks kindly about business people. He had the same snobbish sort of academic response that most academics have to business people, but he said what happens is that people are pursuing their own self-interest. He didn't mean selfishness. He just meant, you know, you might be working in a factory and you're just worried about paying the rent and getting your daughter braces. You can focus on that, but because of a market system, what what Smith called the natural system of liberty, in which you have a a rule of law and you've got a minimally virtuous culture. People can pursue these narrow self interests that they have, the things they're interested in, and yet they will produce something that is, first of all, no part of their original design and that also benefits other people. That's the remarkable thing. And so it's sort of counterintuitive because what's intuitive is that we'll get the nicest, smartest person in charge of the economy and everything will be great. That kind of makes intuitive sense. This idea that setting up a system where people are allowed to pursue their individual self-interest and that will benefit us that's counterintuitive and so this is why it's always a little bit difficult to have these things because to, when you, economic knowledge it requires some thinking and thinking past stage one because the things that seem like they might they might not work or might work don't work very often in economics and the things that seem like they don't work actually if you look at the evidence do work
1: Yeah, and I'd highly recommend, people, you get this book, Money, Greed, and God, because Jay Richards explains all this. He's my guest today, and this book has been updated. No more iPod. we got iPhone in the book now. (laughs) (laughs) But the principle is the same. It's the same principle Adam Smith was talking about 300 years ago. Nobody knows how to even build a pencil, and yet we have pencils. Why? Because the free market allows people to come together, even when they don't know one another, to create these things that no one person could do. Now... Jay, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about this because a lot of people will say, look, capitalism is based on greed, so how can Christians Mm -hmm. be for it? How do you respond?
0: It's not based on greed. So as I said, you know, you could be a worker in a factory, just think about yourself. I mean, most people listening, they're, they're not doing their job simply because they're greedy. Now yeah, they, they may wanna get ahead in life, but they're probably working because they need to pay bills. A lot are doing it because they love what they're doing. They need to provide for their children. And this is sort of Adam Smith's point is, it's not that, well, the butcher, the brewer and the baker ought to be greedy. Smith never said, the greedier you are, the better off the economy will be. There are people that said that, but that's not the lesson. The point is, on the one hand, that in a market economy, we can pursue our legitimate self-interest that are perfectly fine to follow. And then his secondary point is that even when or even if people in a market are greedy, you can't really extinguish greed because of the fall. You're always going to have greed. And so what you want to say is, okay, what economic system is best at channeling greed into socially beneficial outcomes. Well, under a market economy, even if you're greedy, uh, the best way to actually fulfill your greed is to provide something for people that they'll freely buy. That's different from socialism. In socialism, a greedy person's not oriented toward meeting the needs of customers. He's oriented toward paying off incurring favor with government regulators and so that's Mm. sort of the point what you want is an economic system that's fit for the fallen human condition there's nothing about the logic of capitalism or a free market economy that requires greed but it does better than any known alternative at channeling human greed into beneficial outcomes
1: yeah you say in the book that um you've got to compare these economic uh, economic systems not against utopia but the live options Mm.
0: unpack that for us Absolutely, I mean, this is really the problem with so many things that young people do. I've heard people say, well, there's there's poor people in the world, some people don't have enough to eat, some people still get sick and don't have enough healthcare. Well, that's not a description of an economic system per se, that's a description of the human condition. Scarcity is a reality. In fact, that's sort of the second lesson of economics. And Incentives matter is the first one, the second one is that their scarcity is real. Everybody can't have everything that they want. And so what you wanna know is, okay, what is the best system at alleviating scarcity, at allocating scarce resources, and helping us to be able to create wealth that wasn't there before. That's the relevant question, and so you don't want to blame the market economy for things that are just a part of the human condition. You want to say, okay, which of the economic systems that have been tried is the best at alleviating that basic reality? That's the real question, and when you ask the question that way, I mean, there's really only one system that comes anywhere close to doing what we'd want it to do. And we're going to talk more about it right after the
1: break with Jay Richards. I want to ask him about income inequality when we come back. What about that? Can the government do anything about it? Is it a real problem? My name is Frank Turk. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. My guest, Jay Richards, his new updated book, Money, Greed, and God You Need to Get. Trust me, we're just scratching the surface here. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek. The website is crossexamined.org. That's examined with a D on the end of it, org. We're talking to my friend Dr. Jay Richards, professor, Catholic University, fellow at the Discovery Institute, also editor of The Stream or stream.org, a great place to go. His book, Money, Greed, and God, just been updated. You need to get it. Now, Jay, we got to talk about this income inequality situation because Mm -hmm. you hear a lot about that in the media. Mm -hmm. Uh, First of all, can an economy work without income inequality?
0: No, I mean, it can't work well. And so the reality is that what, what you want in an economy is you want it to, in some ways, accommodate actual reality. And so the reality is that people, we vary in our skills. I mean, like it or not, this isn't a denial that we're all equal in the sight of God and not to be treated equally before the law. Absolutely. Uh, nevertheless, people have different skills. They have a different amount of gumption. Some people work really hard. Some people don't. Um, there's just massive variations in our abilities to produce things that are economically valuable. And so um, if you want people to be able to enjoy the fruits of their labor, there's gonna have to be some kind of economic inequality. The second thing is that really, rather than focusing on inequality, is that actually the problem? I mean, for instance, there's a massive income gap between Bill Gates and me and between (laughs) Jeff Bezos, for instance, he's the richest guy and me. It's this massive orders Mm -hmm. of magnitude, different Mm -hmm. gap, right? And then Mm -hmm. there's a gap between me and say uh, you know a, a fruit farmer on the border of Mexico who 's just barely eking by and has five children that mm-hmm. gap 's actually way smaller than the gap between Jeff Bezos and me right, right. now, which one is really morally significant? everybody knows it 's not the one between jeff bezos and me it 's the the one between me and and, and the farmer and the reason it 's not because i 'm doing well. The problem is that that guy isn't, isn't doing well. Just like the problem is not that some people are healthy and some people are sick. The problem is that some people are sick. And we what we do is we focus on differences and on e- uh, income inequality. And the reason is because a lot of people will assume that that in- inequality is what is causing the poverty, that if one person gets rich, it causes someone else to get poor. But that is just absolutely not true in a market economy people can get fabulously wealthy. It's like late Steve jobs, right? He got fabulously wealthy. He didn't get that way by stealing a bunch of iPhones from homeless people. That's mm. not how it works, right? He participated mm. in the process of wealth creation, which he created wealth that was not there before. And so if you actually look at, okay, where do the poor do the best in the world? What you discover is a very tight correlation between the numbers of billionaires in that country and the benefits. To the poor because the same conditions that allow some people to become billionaires also allow lower income people recent immigrants that have no money to be able to work their way into the middle class that's what we should want we should want an economic system in which people that are willing to work hard willing to do things that serve other people can actually work themselves out of poverty. We don't want a world where anyone is poor, but there is poverty is a basic reality. And so the question is, okay, are we going to focus on the gaps between people? or Are we going to focus on the conditions that allow the poor to better Their station in life? I think that's the relevant question. And if we focus on inequality, I really think, first of all, it's not morally significant that some people are really rich if they got rich by serving other people. That's not Mm. the problem. The problem is when people either have ill gotten gain or when some people, through no fault of their own, are poor. That's what we should focus on.
1: Christians also need to remember that there will be inequality in heaven. Some people That's will right. have more rewards than others
0: based on what they do. That's just <laughs> That's, the way it well, is. based on what they do. It is. <laughs> yes. And so, I mean, you'd be thankful if you just barely get in by the skin of your teeth. You're still in the kingdom of God. But, you know, That's the right. problem is, is that I think inequality, what it does is it appeals to people's envy And then it also appeals to people's vicarious envy. So sometimes people feel like, well, I can feel self-righteous and morally indignant because I'm looking over at that poor guy and I'm angry that somebody else is rich. And, but you can, that makes you like, I'm not envious myself. I just feel guilty for them. It's really a type of vicarious envy that allows Mm -hmm. us to virtue signal and to feel good about ourselves. It's really, I think it's it's morally distorted focus on the real problem, focus on poverty and real needs, and then figure out, okay, what set of policies is actually gonna meet that. The, the only reason I think socialism as a kind of intellectual idea holds on so long, it's not because it makes any sense economically, it's because it p- appeals to people's kind of initial distaste of economic inequality. So honestly, Frank, I end up spending a lot of time pounding that, because I think once you, once you sort of solve that problem, the inspiration for socialism more or less dissipates. What's the best way to alleviate poverty? The best way to alleviate poverty culturally is uh, limited government, functioning rule of law, detailed private property rights, uh, economic freedom, uh, basic virtuous uh, populace. Everybody doesn't have to be perfectly virtuous, but you need a population which generally is not stealing and defrauding uh, each other, and then healthy Civil society institutions, so healthy family, healthy churches, healthy businesses, healthy volunteer volunteer organizations. In fact, we're in the United States right now, the number one predictor of childhood poverty, Frank, is whether there's a father in the home or not. Well, I was so just going to ask you that question, Jay. It's huge,
1: Jay. I was just going to ask you that question yeah. that we are we are actually paying women to have kids out of wedlock. If there's no father, they get more money. How do we actually improve the state the safety net? and prevent that from happening at the same time or maintain a safety net and prevent that from happening at the same time. What do we do?
0: Well, what we do is we have to devolve it down to a more local level. So you get these kind of perverse incentives because the federal government is dealing with detailed family decisions, right? And so if they do that, the only thing they can do is just pay women as generic women. When you're at a church, right, it's a church or a local organization that's dealing with this, you're able to deal with people on a personal level. That's why I'm absolutely convinced that the kind of hardcore dug-in poverty that you continue to have in the developed world like the United States, it requires a different kind of solution than is needed in a place that just needs basic economic development. We're past that stage in the United States, and so now we have um, illegitimacy out of wedlock births, Substance addiction—it's things like that that actually lead to poverty, and they're not—they're not really economic problems. They're social and they're moral problems, and social and moral problems. They just work better if they're handled locally. When you have the federal government just handing people a check, ironically, you end up in a situation where you're literally paying women to have more kids out of wedlock, which everybody knows. Well, if you do that, you're going to encourage the very thing that causes the problem, and so we've gotten ourselves in this vicious cycle in in a welfare state logic in which. The thing that we tried to solve, we actually make more of by trying to fix it. and That's the sort of bitter irony of it.
1: So it would have to be, it would seem to me, a difficult thing to just cut those payments off. There how it, it would have to be yes. a, a kind of a program you could kind of uh, incrementally introduce into society. Is there anybody who's come up with a system that, that, that might be able to do that?
0: Yeah, the best example would be uh, the 1996 Welfare Reform Act, which handled mm-hmm. it actually just dealt with one of the uh, welfare uh, sort of so-called means tested welfare programs, and it had to do with this aid to families with dependent children. Um, and it actually worked and it was it was graduated and through all these the claim was that you're going to end up with all these homeless children and women. but studies showed actually no, there was anticipation of what was going to happen. And it actually did what it did is it actually increased uh, employment of these women. So it actually did exactly the opposite of what was claimed. You're exactly right, though. I mean, given the real human situation, you couldn't just sort of cut off the spigot. It would have to be done gradually, and it would have to be done in a way that you don't lose the social safety net. There's a social safety net, it's just evolved down to a more local level, to the level of of private charities and cities and neighborhoods and things like that. But until there's a political will to do that, I'm not optimistic that's going to happen.
1: No, you actually um, had a, either was a debate or a, a presentation you gave about the connection between religious and economic liberty, how they fall together. Yes. Can you just kind of give us a, a sentence or two on that or a short explanation? Absolutely.
0: Of- yeah, it's a, basically, if you look at the index of economic freedom and then you look at Pew's index of religious freedom, what you find is that at the extremes, these two things hang together. So if you believe in, in in religious freedom and religious liberty. But you might think, but I'm kind of a left winger on economics. You should really look at this data because it turns out that um, if you don't have any economic freedom, you're not going to have religious freedom for long and vice versa. I mean, obviously, if you're told what kind of job you can do, how much you can make, how many kids you're going to have, where you're going to live, right? A lot of your religious freedom ends up being challenged. And so Mm -hmm. my argument is that essentially these things, at least in the long run and and at the extremes, uh, stand or fall together. So if you want economic freedom, defend religious freedom. If you want religious freedom, defend economic freedom.
1: And you have a whole presentation on YouTube, you can see on that. That was just the, the, the one-minute version. <laughs>
0: but anyway. Exactly. Uh, now, Jay, <laughs> let me
1: ask you this. When politicians use the phrase, paying your fair share, particularly of what they deem the rich, what standard are they using to determine what is fair? Do you know? Well, I assume it, I'd love yeah, to it's ask
0: <laughs> yeah basically what that means is that everybody that makes more than me should pay a lot more i think uh-huh. that's basically uh, is what that it what it means me. okay yeah but realistically i mean because uh-huh. it, it's really again it's an appeal to envy because there's always unless you're jeff bezos there's somebody out there in the country that makes more than you and so mm-hmm. it sort of appeals to your envy that well, wait there's people that are doing so much better than me they should really pay more than i do well guess what they do uh, that's exactly what they do. Just just Google the uh, percentage of income tax receipts that are paid by different segments of the population. The top 1%, the top 10%, the top 50% pay something like 97% of all income tax receipts mm. uh, to the federal treasury. So that's actually already happening. We have a highly progressive income tax. And so people that make more, they don't just pay more because they make more and there's a larger percentage of, you know, a larger pie. They actually pay a higher percentage of your right. income, and so that—that's just this the basic reality. These myths, where you hear these things that you know, Mitt Romney doesn't. His secretary pays more income mm-hmm. tax than he does. That's because he's not paying income tax because he just is living off of dividends and things like that. Um, but he's paying huge amounts of taxes, and trust me, he paid a huge amount in his original income and in taxes as well.
1: Now, Jay, when when the economy gets better, like it has in recent years, it. it is everybody doing better, or I know the the gap probably between the rich and the poor is getting greater, but the poor are still more better are are more better off are still better off. I'm going yeah. back to Jersey English, right? I mean, <laughs> right. they're still better off than than they were
0: absolutely. prior to that. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's only possible if wealth more wealth can be created right if Mm -hmm. there's a fixed amount of wealth and if one person gets wealthier somebody else has to get poorer well that's not what happens i mean now of course under different circumstances some people get richer than others but the question you want to ask is okay well are the people that are bad off Are they doing better or not? That's absolutely happening. We're at historic uh, unemployment or employment levels. uh, And on almost any measure, they're doing better than they were even five years ago.
1: It's the great Jay Richards, ladies and gentlemen. Dr. Jay Richards, his book, Money, Greed, and God You Need to Get. We just started talking about what's in this book. So pick it up. Great Christmas gift. So pick it up. I'm Frank Turk. See you next week. Great having Jay on the show. Merry Christmas, everyone.